Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry with Mage the Podcast, and this week's episode is a panel I was on that was hosted by the Twitch show Walking Into Shadow, which streams the second and fourth Tuesday of each month at twitch.tv slash the Onyx Path at around 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It is a show explaining Mage 20th Anniversary Edition. There are a few parts where we were troubleshooting streaming issues, so if the topic jarringly changes, it may be because of that. And with that, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Walking Into Shadow. My name is Simon. I am your host. This is an introductory series to Mage of the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition. We have a special as we return to our discussion of the at least two of the major factions of the Ascension War in Mage. That is the Council of Traditions and the Technocratic Union. And we're going to have a, let's say, just a fun little discussion here as to who are the real heroes of the Ascension War. Those of you who tuned into the Technocracy episodes or who happened to just pass by my mention of them on Twitter, I was kind of talking big about, oh, let's talk about meet the real heroes of this uh, of this game here, the, the people who are going to save us all, and try to keep a bit of that tone. So what we're doing tonight is I've got three esteemed guests in the major world here to talk about the real heroes of this. We're going to maybe pick apart some of the traditions, pick apart some of the conventions, some of the other groups, uh, talk some trash about them, and just have a little bit of fun with who these are. If you are an old hat in the world of darkness, uh, you might remember that in the various splat books, they each contained a set of stereotypes as to how each of these groups felt about the others. The core books did too. And some of those were sometimes funny, sometimes descriptive. And so that's just kind of the approach we're going to take uh, with it tonight. Uh, so I'm going to go let the guests introduce themselves. Tyler? Hey, I'm Tyler, uh, Eldritch Echoes on the Bird app. I've written in uh, one or two mage supplements and run mage every week all the time on my Twitch channel. Awesome. And then uh, moving downwards, Terry, returning to the show. Hi, mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. I have also had the opportunity to write on Mage. I have been commenting, for lack of a better term, and doing Storyteller Vault supplements for the last four years. But more importantly, I've run about, at this point, a little bit shy of 40 Mage the Ascension one-shots. So I try and stay somewhat in tune with that first experience where someone comes in contact with Mage. And since nice. this is Mage the Ascension, I look forward to each of us coming down squarely on all sides and still being wrong. So, yeah, that's me. And last but certainly not least, uh, below me on the screen. Hey, everybody. Uh, Sauteros Fobricato, a.k.a. Seder. Pretty much that damn mage guy. I've uh, been wedded to mage since 29 years, <laughs> 29 years as of next month. Author, co-creator, two-time, uh, two-run line developer. Been, again, working on mage on and off, largely on since 1993. 20th anniversary is my baby. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, great. So we've talked about the uh, meaning of the term of uh, the word magi and uh, how it just speaks to someone of, of greater knowledge. And so one of the reasons that mage, the idea of the consensus of the Ascension War itself is so special is that the technocracy is a viable force because they just come at it from a different angle. Uh, and the other groups too, but we'll get into them as we need to. <laughs> what I guess I'd like to start with is... Uh, maybe if we could brief rundown of in the game, how the technocracy was presented and then why the, the change, because the 20th anniversary edition presents the traditions, the technocracy, the disparate alliance, 
all as being very viable protagonists. It's, it's sort of protagonist neutral. Uh, but I would like to start by, we've talked about the technocracy, but in setting. So I'd like to talk about them out of setting because it's easy to see the traditions as a protagonist of the game, but well, it hasn't always been easy to see the technocracy as the protagonist of the game. I'd like to start, maybe Terry, you could run through, talk about the history of how it was presented. And then uh, Saker, maybe you could talk about the sort of the motivations behind how they changed as they went. I'm thinking specifically when the guide to the technocracy finally came out as a viable playable and then talk about sort of the paradigmatic change that decided it was time to have the technocracy in there i will step aside now uh terry sure uh in the mage the ascension 1e core rulebook we get the idea that the world is largely ruled by the technocracy they are a uber magical organization that has chosen to use science as a veneer it is very clear in the 1e progenitor book and the 1e iterator book that it is just a bunch of trappings and there is no such thing as real science science is done by propagating large ideas to the masses and that is how the world changes the ether was dispensed by the mickelson and morley experiments promulgating the idea that the ether did not exist up until then it very much did and in this flourish before the masses literally the cosmos changed in 2e it goes more into that scientific paradigm that no science is a novel way of generating understanding of the world in some basic way it is an internally consistent and functional way of describing the cosmos the technocracy through enlightenment has unusually good access to it the most gifted of mortal scientists is not that far off from kind of the some of the lower levels of the technocracy your enlightenment provides you insights into the workings of the cosmos 2e has this internal battle of do technocrats believe they are doing magic or not and this even follows through into sorcerer's crusade which basically says lower retay order of reason members can't do vulgar magic because they don't think they're doing magic there is no vulgarity that is possible and one of the key things i argue on mates the podcast is every edition is actually like four or five editions and that's fine that gives us the the breadth <laughs> to play with revised is kind of broken up into two things we don't get a lot of information on the technocracy in early revised one because guide to the technocracy comes out relatively late in 2e and two we we only got one convention book before the CCP buyout. The technocratic book in Revised that really puts a capstone on it proves to be two books. One, Ascension, which kind of answers what the technocracy endgame was, how the great old masters were trapped in these viasilicos, and how control was just kind of this collection of their actions. But more importantly, convention book Void Engineer brings up the idea of the enlightened anthropic principle, that the technocracy has the straight dope on reality, and they're the only faction that really talks of it in that term, that they realize that agglomerations of consciousness and data have the ability to instantiate models of reality. This is an idea that was first brought up in Guide to the Technocracy in one of the most brilliant pieces of mage writing, where they talk about how if a hermetic wants to heat soup, they summon a fire elemental. But if we wanted to give that ability to every mortal, the planet would burst into flames. So we invented the microwave as a safe way for people to harness that without gaining the ability to summon a fire elemental. 
the technocracy has figured out that there are instantiations of models that are highly hazardous. They are internally contradictory. And this is what reality deviants do. They bring models into existence without consideration of what they are and the damage that they can do. So the goal of the technocracy is to weed out models that would not work. My example of this is we are very lucky that the laws of physics do not allow us to microwave sand to cause a nuclear explosion. A society where that is the laws of physics would be very much different than when we, one we would have now. And the greatest authoritarianism you can think of would pale in comparison to what would be required to build up any structures in a world where microwaving stand, sand caused a nuclear blast. The technocracy in revised is our front line against that. Peeling away hazardous ideas and allowing the ones that are convivial that go with its ideas to flourish. Now in M20, all the factions of the game kind of have an idea that that's kind of what the game is. And the technocracy essentially says, we are the only faction that is elite, meritocratic, diverse, and open to everyone. The problem with that is they want to define what elite is. They want to define what merit is pursuant to the notion of meritocracy. They want to describe the people they consider to be included in this great future. And at all level, they want to be the judges of things. So they are the embodiment of authority and control, not necessarily in a strictly malevolent way, but that there are certain things you can't get away from when there is a group that they think is in charge and just wants to do the best for other people without asking them. And that is my TLDR high level overview of four editions of the technocracy. Excellent. Thank you. I like that. Uh, that the, was brilliant. How do you say it again? They, uh, they want to do the best for everybody without asking them? More or less. Yeah. Which is essentially true of, of all of the factions, really. Sure. And it's yeah. certainly true of the traditions as well. The, the essay that I wrote in the Book of Secrets, uh, Magic and the Fascist Urge, I point out how all of the factions, and in fact, in real life, most occult orders are innately some brand of fascism. Mm -hmm. Well-intentioned, usually, but then again, the capital F fascism was theoretically well-intentioned too as long as you were you know the person carrying the axe not the person on the receiving end of it would you maybe be able to provide us some insight then as to over the the editions uh, considering the length of time that you sure. developed this um <laughs> here's the first edition now let's look at what we you know how people are receiving it when we approach the second edition or what was it demand was it internal uh, it was well, it was largely internal, uh, and it was also kind of a combination of circumstances. To start with, we were all kids when we did those books right. in the 90s. Uh, the, the oldest person in the company, when I joined in 1993, the oldest person in the company was 29. The youngest person in the company was 17. The, the average age was probably around 23, 24. It is astonishing, especially in hindsight, it's astonishing what we were able to do, especially given that the internet, as we know, it didn't exist in that period. Mm -hmm. uh, there was online, there was a World Wide web, but things like social media didn't exist. Wikipedia didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. We were a bunch of kids hammering around a lot of, uh, a lot of big ideas as quickly as humanly possible because we were also putting out eight to 10 books per line per year. And most of us freelancers and staffers alike were writing on several lines combined. So 
we were generating an exhausting and astonishing amount of content in a very short period of time with comparatively little experience and essentially only the references that we could find on the shelves of the local library or the local bookshop or the, or the local bookstore. As has been talked about exhaustively, we made a lot of mistakes. Some of them were, were very much reflections of the 1990s era. A lot of them were the preconceptions that come from a you know, largely suburban, largely white talent group. In the case of Mage, almost 50-50, male, female, with a, with a couple of people who would now be called non-binary, but the, that term didn't exist in the, in the early 90s. Stewart's initial idea, which, you know, he worked on with, uh, with Steve and with uh, Steve Wick and, and Chris Hine, was that mages are the enlightened people who move society forward, that there are some people who move society, as in, to use Robert Piercing's metaphor, that move humanity and existence forward, and then there are those who latch it in place so it doesn't go backwards. In Stuart's view, the traditions, the mystics, were the people who had the vision to move humanity forward, and the technocracy was the force that locked it into place and kept it from, uh, theoretically, kept it from backsliding. What I brought to that, being a few years older than Stuart and Steve and, and having more life experience than most of the people who were writing for us at that point, was my both a, a broader knowledge of various metaphysical practices and also more life experience both with and without the metaphysical experiences i also came with a great deal of, of socio-political rage partly because my, my just my my punk ass and partly because <laughs> i've been working shitty jobs and living in a shitty neighborhood in a decaying marriage for years by that point i had a lot of things to say <laughs> and Stuart Steves and Chris's original version of Mage, the traditions were kind of a, a character classes grafted onto a lot of metaphysical ideas. That version didn't quite click with people who weren't Stuart or Steve. So the uh, with Stuart and Steve's involvement and, and agreement, the, the book was rewritten in a period of weeks by the staff. During that time, there were some <laughs> marathon meetings. I wasn't present for this, but I was you know, talking to people who were. At that point, I was still uh, working in Virginia's largest shoe store, Socks and Shoes, uh, and freelancing for White Wolf, which is what I'd been doing for about a year at that point. And essentially, the big bad of the technocracy and the werewolf tie-in of the Nefandi and the Malkavian tie-in of the Marauders got dropped on top of that metaphysical framework during that rewriting period. And partly just because they didn't really have time to think a lot of things through and partly because it was a bunch of kids, you know, it was technocracy, bad, you know, technology, bad, science, bad, magic, good, magic brings back the age of wonder and all of this. Meanwhile, had had firsthand and secondhand experience with cults and recognized that sometimes, oh, the, the wonder of magic is a great way to fuck people up. I brought a, a more, um, let's say cynical, uh, sardonic, uh, I guess, and, and definitely more skeptical view to everybody. I also was an actor. I had just recently ended my acting career when I started writing. And so I was trained as a, uh, as a method actor in college. And so I approached everything that I, I, I approach everything that I write from the perspective of an actor. What's the story? What's your motivation? What does this character need? What, is, what obstacles does this character face? How does this character meet their needs? And what happens when those needs conflict with the needs and desires and tactics of other characters in the play? That's where you get conflict from. And so the original first edition of Mage was 
by Stuart's own admission, not thought out particularly fast or particularly well, they needed to get it out by Gen Con, and that meant it needed to go to press in time to arrive at Gen Con. And so, as Ken Cliff put it, when he handed me the the first copy to come back for the printer, it's all yours. We don't have the slightest idea what to do with it. That came in response to me asking, how much creative latitude do I have with this? And he said, as long as you don't immediately throw out everything that's in the book and try and start over and don't contradict the world of darkness in general, it's all yours. We don't have the slightest idea what to do with it. So it took me and my crew about a year, year and a half to actually throw a foundation behind all of the big ideas that were in the first edition book. We started doing that with the Book of Chantries, which was the first source book, which Steve Brown, Jim Moore, and I wrote in a frenzy in about three weeks, essentially making everything up as we went along, not sleeping a whole hell of a lot during during that process. Because of the ideas that I had, the things that I wanted to pursue, and the things that to me did not make sense about first edition that I had to make work, I gathered together you know, a core of collaborators, Brian Campbell, Kathleen Ryan, Bill Bridges, Jim Moore, Owl going back, Travis Williams, and later on, Nikki Ray, Jackie Cassida, uh, and Judith McLaughlin. It's not like we all sat together in a room because some of us lived in other states. We spent a lot of time on the phone. We spent a lot of time, those of us who were in uh, each other's office, who were sharing an office building, we spent a lot of time in each other's offices. And I spent a lot of time on the phone and at conventions with fans going, what do you want from Mage? What do you need from Mage? What do you not understand about Mage? What needs to be fixed? What needs to make sense? What do you want to see? And gradually carved second edition out of all of the things. And in the course of that, one of my primary disagreements with the original uh, with the original concept was that technology itself is not evil, and magic in itself certainly is not good. And the idea of grafting a good and evil dichotomy on something as ambiguous as as magic, and certainly as as sprawling as reality and belief, uh, was just it didn't work. So I guided that together with the with the, the, the visions of what the fans wanted and needed, what the people who were most involved with the line, which also after a while included the artists, uh, especially Mark Jackson and Echo Chernick, who at that point was uh, known as H.J. McKinney and Alex Sheikman. And we did a whole lot of brainstorming, especially mm-hmm. during a period where Brian Campbell, Kathleen Ryan, and I lived together in the same apartment and didn't get a whole hell of a lot of sleep. Like I said, one of those big changes was my view, one, that none of the uh, the factions is good, that they're mm-hmm. all pretty fucked up when you think about it, because all of them, as I said a few minutes ago, all of them were about imposing their idea of what reality should be on top of everybody else and, you know, oppressing and or killing anybody who didn't agree. And that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many magic hats or black hats you put on it. That's wrong. And so I brought that skepticism, that interrogation of the basic concept into second edition and just refined it further. And one of the things that Brian and I agreed on was that for all of the technocracy's many sins, and they are, you know, I've gotten, you know, shit over the years from people going, you're glorifying fascism. Well, you know what? Yes, they are fascists. And Like I said, so are the traditions, really. When you take into account, especially with the arms race, that uh, given what the world of darkness was presented at with fucking were dinosaurs and and Fomori and (laughs) blood ghouls and gargoyles and shit like that, the technocracy, for as awful as they are and as as hideous as the things that they do are, really are humanity's first and last line of defense against this 
world of monsters. That's literally what the world of darkness is. It's a world of monsters. And in fact, as a mage, no matter what faction you are, and I say this outright in, in second edition, in the introduction of second edition, you're still a monster. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, you're a human monster and you may have all the best intentions in the world. But to me, the core conflict dynamic driving mage is not technology against magic. It's the potential of corruption and abuse versus enlightenment and transcendence. That's has been my guiding vision for mage uh, really since 93, but especially in, in the 20th anniversary. Presenting then the technocracy as a playable faction, as a more nuanced and in-depth group uh, would be inevitable because if you want to avoid that, it's not a situation like people are wondering about this mysterious sabbat and then you get a player's guide, a retailer's guide. They're the initial antagonists, but they're not full-on the capital V villains, because, especially in comparison to these other ones, right? It's not. Now you get to play the baddies. It was a, well, actually. As I, I forget which book I'd said it in, but the difference between a hero and a murderer is the, is the side of his sword you happen to be on. <laughs> right. I think one of the interesting things, though, about Mage, though, is I don't think anyone wants anyone to win the Ascension War. Um, yeah. the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the world where the crafts win, it is a doctrinaire one where who you are as a person is reduced to a certain degree of cultural essentialism. In the traditions version, it is the collection of things that you think you have to surmount to ascend. In the technocracy, it is a notion of utility and their definition of flourishing. And for the Nefandi, it's destruction. For the marauders, it is independence gone to the level of incomprehensibility. So one of the neat things about Mage is everyone is everyone else's antagonist if you're doing well enough. Uh, kind of one of the ideas of Mage in its history was there was a while where the techno- uh, where the traditions were the top dog and the sleepers in this other group are like, no, this doesn't work for us. And then the technocracy kind of became top top dog and other people are like no this doesn't work for us Uh, to me kind of the interesting question of are the technocracy the baddies is the technocracy made the mistake of providing enough material comfort that people had enough cognitive room to say hey what do i want to do with my life and that is a very dangerous place to be (laughs) because they had destroyed the factions that gave interesting answers to that question kind of like when charles wilson was asked by congress how does fermilab help us win the war to abbreviate his answer was fermilab Lab is the reason we are waging this war, QV against communism. It represents the desire of humanity to flourish, to explore the stars, to know the cosmos. The technocracy made the mistake of getting ahead, making people comfortable, but not answering those more deep-seated questions of, so what do I want? And that gave space for everyone else to come in. We have the spiritualist movement that comes on the wake of the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century, which is kind of one of the traditions recent flourishing. But also it created a world where people could indulge in unmitigated evil and never pay the consequences, much to the joy of the Nefandi. So if we're going to treat them as an antagonist, the problem they did was they failed to come up with meaningful answers to the questions of, so what does it all mean mm-hmm. and or what what is the good life and that to me is partially why i find them fascinating the reasons they can have done so much for humanity and still be the reason that hammer security responses out there or the decadenti are in the halls of power or the baffies can exist because only in a world of global transit and people having enough disposable income to go to festivals do you have space for these party going satanists to be co-opting the next generation when you're no longer running from dragons and dealing with vampires nightly basis 
you have time to think about these other things. Tyler, one of the things you mentioned about Vorpal Tales is the frequency that mages run. So how do you wind up translating this to the table? How do you find players approach this? Is it still a very divided view or does everyone kind of have this big open like, well, there are differing opinions. Everyone's got an alternative fact. I've actually been fascinated by the technocracy since they came out. Mage was the okay. second role-playing game I ever played. <laughs> I don't like running a chronicle where I don't somehow force them to mix. Well, all of my mage chronicles have at least one technocrat in a group of tradition mages just to see what they do. I like to actually take that first edition concept because I've been playing since 1993, so it's stuck in my head where their motivations are slightly cartoony. Take those concepts, make them part of the character's personality, and then tell me why that matters on a real level. One of my players on the current game plays, or recently before they broke the timeline, they were playing a very, very rich syndicate member using the new Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic Rules, and extremely cartoony, extremely Scrooge McDuck. So I had her create an entire backstory of why would someone who's real be like that in real life? How does mm -hmm. that guide your paradigm? Why is that how you think? And why do you think this solves all the world's problems? If you do that, then they become much more approachable. And you can still have your silly old rusty hit marks, but there's a reason somebody built that guy. There's a reason that person was motivated to do that. They were affected by something or hurt by someone that made them believe this is how it has to be. It's still a very diverse view of it at the table. Yes, but, For, but, in our tables, yeah. Right. And somebody always wants to play a technocrat because science is magic is always mm -hmm. a fascinating and it's actually easier for a lot of new players to wrap their heads around explaining techno science than trying to explain why a wand and my idea of chakra makes magic work it's much easier for them to say i reverse the polarity i find that fascinating only because when i started playing it i was a completely the opposite way um, yeah, i was too <laughs> right because to me it was well magic is magic and magic says magic and if i chant these words if i draw this shape if I make this prayer, stuff happens. And well, one of the things that, that happened with M20 was the reapproach of focus. I found then all of a sudden I was now able to really get it. It could be a massive error on in the explanation I was given when I first started playing, because I started playing as a teenager. I was 14, maybe 15. It was my first time approaching a freeform magic system. A spontaneous and creative casting. Potentially a misreading of my, on my part later on of, um, of the focus rules was that your focus was this thing. So it was your staff or it was your particular chant. And so for whatever reason, I got stuck on this idea that it had to be this device. And yeah. so my correspondence focus is this device. And so I sat there and thought, well, then how does this... How does this work? Because to me, if, sorry, if science is magic is science, this thing does what it does. If this creates a, an acme black hole and I can slide through it and I can do all sorts of stuff, cool. But then what happens when I try and get creative about it? And it could well be because it was playing a technocrat or a technomancer. It never crossed my, my field of vision that I had options so that there were other rules to sort that out, right? The idea. I can of, tell you how I solved that. My yeah. And it's also, I think, the reason why you were asking how do people take to technocrats now? My answer to how you solve that question relates to why everyone wants to be a technocrat now and why everyone thinks you can mix the groups because of Marvel. Iron Man can work with Doctor Strange. Uh -huh. And so my answer to how does one idea of a device solve everything, Doctor Who's a technocrat, a sonic screwdriver. Right. 
Doctor Who's a marauder. He's a technomancer, not but, a technocrat. Yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> yeah. He came from there, but not anymore. But, uh, but to the previous notion yeah. on your Acme wormhole generator, to me, that is analogous to saying, how did you stab me with your knife? I thought that was only for food. Yeah, these items ha- have a variety of ways. And I will totally agree. Some of the early 1E stuff was wacky, where you're like, nope, yes. you picked ether goggles for forces. Have fun yeah. with that. Right. Um, and not until revised did we break the tie between sphere oh. and, and, and focus. No, no, second um, edition did. Second edition. Yes, disagree. Where? In the magic, in the magic rules, in the core, yeah. <laughs> okay. This is your focus for this sphere. This is the thing that I wave around. That that's in first edition, and the first few first edition source books it kept that just simply because I was in the process. My my crew and I were in the process of of making all these all, making all these things make sense. And one of the things that didn't make sense to me was the idea that there would be one instrument to you know to work with a sphere. And I was like, that's not the way magic actually works. So that's the the concept of magic styles, as as I called the shifting the shifting of focus on focus was an ongoing process yeah. because it was something. It was one of the things I, I I hadn't particularly liked in first edition. So I was adjusting it, changing it basically as we could. It gets reworked a little bit in the Book of Secrets or the Book of Shadows rather, which is kind of Mage one point five. And then by by Mage second edition, I had come up with the uh, the, the 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 concept of uh, magic styles uh which is you know if you're using witchcraft then it's kind of like this if you're you know using cybernetics then it's kind of like this i expanded on that in sorcerer's crusade and said you know that if you're doing this type of style which you can blend with this type of style you might use this and you might use this and you might use this but how you use them and what you use is up to you maybe they said it in as many words in revised but the concept was it was was changed uh, earlier than that the 20th anniversary change in focus came ironically uh, as an idea that I had as I was on my way out the door because I'd spent a while trying to brainstorm out because people were like, we want mage LARP rules. And there was also talk of a mage computer game. And, you know, the question in both cases was how the hell do you take this freeform magic system and adopt Mm -hmm. it into something where you can play it in live action without everybody getting three storytellers? To argue for an hour right. every time you cast a spell. Which would be the realest mage LARP of all. I'm just <laughs> putting right. that out there. <laughs> yeah. And also how to make all those things work while cutting out the the whole, which I've you know parodied endlessly, the vampiric lawn chair thing of, well, I have the spheres, I can do whatever the hell I want. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, use medieval witchcraft, but I will change your chromosomes around because I have the spheres to do that. And I was just like, no, that's not the way it works. I had the idea of the breaking focus down into what do you believe you can do? How do you believe you can do it? What do you use to do what you believe you can do? Idea right before you know I left. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm not going to give them that idea. So I took it <laughs> and, and used it in Deliria Fairy Tales for New Millennium, which was praised for the way that it handled magic. And I was like, well, I guess that worked. When I started working on Mage 20 and was, you know, talking with various fan groups and authors and, and so forth about what did you like about each of the editions and how can we bring to, to 20th anniversary, make it the best of all mages. And I was initially blending the idea of the magic styles and the reality zones, which is also uh, brought up in second edition and uh, Sorcerer's Crusade, incorporating that with the changes I brought into uh, Deliria with the 
huge word count that you get to play with when you crowdfund something and it's printed on demand and you don't have to worry about how the hell you're going to get a retailer to to lay out you know the money because one of the 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 big barriers to uh, explaining a lot of these things or going into a lot of these things in the old days was simply the distribution system the printing costs and so forth returns sales mm-hmm. you know sales not even sales goals the, the number of units of a particular book you needed to sell in order to break even and you know the you had an upper limit of what you could profitably create and profitably sell through the retail chains i think the upper limit at this point that i've seen is about 900 pages which i think is what haunted west is mm-hmm. i know that haunted <laughs> west is bigger than mage 20 and mage 20 was the upper limit when it came out but in any case once i had the the, the page count and the word count to be able to take that idea and really run with it if, if we hadn't already done the art buy i would have made uh, focus its own chapter what I did wasn't that radical a break. It's just that it was better explained and in more detail and more depth than we'd ever been able to do before because the focus chapter or the focus section rather, the focus section of of chapter 10 was the was the length of two clan books. Right. Actually, the length of three <laughs> clan books, uh, two tradition books. Just wow. as a but, note, um, Haunted West is a mere 806 pages. The, <laughs> oh, oh. the winner is still... Tolis City by the Spire at 808 to the best of my uh to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> I too. Wow. Didn't even know about that one. I hadn't even heard of that one. Oh, it's a Monty Cook thing. Um yeah. oh, okay. He doesn't Mon- write Monty books. can do that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't write books so much as tip over and have books fall out of his brain. It's uh infuriating. <laughs> are, you, are you counting um the original Tolis or the new? No, that's the original Tolis. The new original. the newer Tolis was broken up uh thankfully into into multiple copies it's weird to look at like my core book for chubbo's marvelous wish granting engine at a mere 576 pages and being like this is only the ninth largest rpg book i have so it's funny that that the and this is one of the things i I love about this era of really unfettered creativity in in the medium in general is you can have role-playing games as short as four or five hundred words or you Mm -hmm. can make them as long as 800 and some odd pages I want to go to the idea of which of the groups are not, let's, let's not say the good guys. Let's say the most something, and we'll throw in whatever adjective we want to throw in here, do it. And I want to uh, say something. I don't know if it's controversial. It might not be. Everyone may agree. But I was giving it a bit of thought. In our first episode, we were asking the chat, your favorite tradition, favorite convention. For me, the tradition was easy. I've always loved the Order of Hermes. I was trying to think of which convention I like. You know, it was kind of tough. You know, they're, they're cool. I like Iteration X, you know, Cyborg's fun. Regenerators, cool. You can throw in maybe neat, like, Resident Evil storylines or something like that with them. Syndicate, eh, okay. I mean, capitalism, the let's put it aside. Oh, New World Order, World right? Order. Well, of course, New World Order is nasty and vicious. Why wouldn't they be? That's their whole point. But what I thought was, here's a statement I want to make. The Void Engineers are potentially the most heroic and have humanity's best interests at heart out of any of the groups in Mage of the Ascension. Positing that on the idea that they know there are things beyond the barriers. They know these things exist and are not good necessarily for people here. And I'm not just talking about threat null. And they know that they are there as the line of defense for us average folk against these things their mission statement is the most quote-unquote good of them as a whole mission statement 
Void Engineers is my favorite technocratic faction and always has been because Egon Spengler is a Void Engineer Ghostbusters. Okay. I do uh, think that they are potentially the most heroic, but also potentially the ones that are going to wreck everything. So, uh, sure. <laughs> I think we would need kind of a definition of what you mean by heroic. The most Ooh, likely okay. to die in the line of duty, certainly, yes. Um, <laughs> the tricky thing, though, is we get into really weird places. The most important technocrat of the 20, 20th century, I say this tongue-in-cheek because I generally don't like historical figures being made into mages. It can be kind of fun, but you can get into weird spaces and you're like, what does it mean that Benjamin Franklin <laughs> was a member of the NW? It's, like, mm. it's fascinating, <laughs> but I try and push it off to the side. Is is a little-known progenitor by the name of Norman Borlaug, who led the Green Revolution and was responsible for creating one billion human life years. A void shift costs billions of dollars. Would we say the Navy is the most heroic aspect of the government? I wouldn't, because in a dollars and cents sense, the question is, what are you sacrificing personally, and what is the benefit that we're getting out of it? Reality did pretty good against the outer dark for a lot of centuries. We don't have examples of the canon of things coming from space, really. Um, right. And a lot of the things that we're killing are like yetis. <laughs> I, like, you're like, okay. yeah, we're extinguishing wonder from the cosmos. You should thank us. I don't know. Um, a lot yeah. of things are automatically killed by unbelief mm -hmm. in terms of raw number. And this is partially just kind of to debate the point. They're remarkably expensive. They are constantly exposed and lose to corruption. They're the ones that are literally touching mm -hmm. the shenty of entropy. They're the ones that can literally fly to the worm. And you're like, oh yep. yeah, this vector that will destroy us all is clearly, clearly the most heroic. To me, in terms of sacrifice, in a lot of cases, I would go with the NWO. It may sound super weird, but the NWO to me is the apple of the technocracy. There is very open communication within it, but there is just a wall when dealing with the rest of the world. And how many aspiring people that if they had used their enlightenment for self-enrichment could have become the next insert nonfiction author of note here that made hundreds of millions of dollars off of the thing. But they said, no, shaping the thought weft of humanity is too important for me not to do it. There is a heroism there. The, the trick within the technocracy, though, is we have the division between the utopians and the unionists. The utopians believe in the goal of the order of reason to allow humanity to flourish. And then you have the unionists that say, I work for the big company. I'm going to cheer for the big company. I'm going to big company good. Right. The void engineer who decimates the population of an umbral realm because it's another type of deviance has literally committed genocide. Not really heroic. So it's, it is really one of those things where if we compare the best version and the worst version, the mm. void engineers are uniquely capable of doing both ends. But the person who could have been a rock star Nobel laureate who sacrifices that all to come up with a way of preventing uh, thrush from consuming the, the dwarf wheat crop in China has literally saved hundreds of millions of lives. And under mm -hmm. that calculus, I think the most heroic people in the technocracy are some pretty strange people that we probably wouldn't have considered. But that's that's me getting on my, uh, my, my high horse of what does it mean to encourage human flourishing? They all have the capacity for great good and great evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, that to me was the super fun part about late revised where they're like every convention had this internal tension mm -hmm. that wasn't going to resolve itself. It's like, mm -hmm. oh no, all of them are sitting on top of a powder keg. You have fun <laughs> with that. Mm -hmm. I love that 20th too. Cause yeah. it's still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My only other thought would be 
was specifically to the Void Engineers. As individuals, maybe they're heroic, but as a faction, those outer dark horrors wouldn't know we exist if they weren't out there poking them. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, very true. But yeah, and, and heroic, as, as again, I say in the, uh, the introduction to Mage 20, heroic historically does not mean nice person you know heroic and when you when you look at you know the the roots of both the word and the concept in in western uh, in western civilization the heroes are those who are worth singing about some of them you know especially literally you know in greek they're horrible jason's awful heracles is awful theseus is awful they're murderers and rapists and and not very nice people carries through all the way and you know to, to the into the modern era and certainly if true in folklores especially i address this in deliria fairy tales for the millennium you, you look at the heroes of of traditional fairy tales especially the ones who got a, a cycle of fairy tales like jack jack's an asshole <laughs> he's not a nice person to kind of be a pedant, if we're going to talk about absolute good, one of the interesting things you can do in Mage is you have the Batini, where a character can have mm. Arcane of Nine and literally drop out of reality. Is that perfect good? Like, one of the things that I always found fascinating is I really wish Mage had that statement, like, vampires, a beast I must be, or a beast I will become. To me, the one in Mage is to change the world is hubris, to fail to change the world is cowardice. Mm-hmm. That's good. There are a lot of magical traditions that focus on removal from the world, but is that shortchanging your role in the Ascension conflict? That to me has always been kind of that question. One of the things that's kind of recommended or, or noted in fits and starts is once you awaken, you are driven to act. And this is why you tend to have characters that are dynamic agents in the world. Does enlightenment or does awakening come with it? A a expectation that you will attempt to change the world and to not is to deny that. Um, So I think that question of perfection can get into really weird places. Is it a moral flaw if you are not actively improving the world merely that you are not harming it or merely that you are removing yourself from it? Well, I guess if you're saying that, then the technocracy are heroes because they define what good is. <laughs> Depending on who you're talking to in the traditions, the traditions do that as well, and you know, to a degree, the uh, the crafts do also. Although in the in the case of uh, in the case of the, the disparates, the disparate crafts, they're more concerned with what is good, what is good for my people rather than what is good for all the people, which you know makes a whole lot of sense when you consider that most of the groups in the uh, in, in the disparate alliance come from cultures or subcultures that uh, have been either marginalized within the last few hundred years, or in the case of the, the Wulong, who were once the kings and now are, de- and are now dispo- deposed. And they feel that in being deposed, that, that the mandate of heaven, the perfection and the order of heaven has been lost to the world. So they need to bring it back as, as much as possible. But unfortunately, everybody else is getting in the goddamn way. <laughs> That core statement, too, is why I love Mage and have since 1993, because that's the first thing I picked up when I flipped through it at the store was power to change reality. What would it do to you? It's one of the smaller goals than reality, but obviously it's one of the reasons why superhero media Mm -hmm. attracts people so readily. Um, The difference here is it's less throwing fists at bank robbers and more throwing fists at the walls of your universe like later DC crises. You know, it's, it's approaching on the metal level. But that's the beauty of Mage's subversion. Because in mm-hmm. superhero films, the mortals look to the superheroes. But in Mage, yeah. the superheroes, quote unquote, the mages have to look to the mortals. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in Technocracy Reloaded, we have the idea that the syndicate refers to baseline mortals as reality quantum. That they are <laughs> a shareholder 
or a stakeholder in reality and they represent one vote and mm-hmm. the moment we forget that we lose and uh, that that's is steven's work too it's funny you're starting to slowly sell me on the syndicate um <laughs> they're the best group they're also the so one of the things that i think happens is so the the technocracy was originally kind of presented as the the static corner of the metaphysical trinity where you have the nefandi which are uh, entropic and then you have the uh, marauders mm-hmm. who are dynamic but it's also interesting in that the technocracy is the only group that is theoretically at one of those points that you can leave you can't unmarauder easily you can't unnefandi mm-hmm. but you can walk away from the technocracy and to me it would be super interesting that if every t3 got like a neck implant or something like that they would explode if they tried to, to leave or something like that but i think one of the things that this that the newer technocracy holds is so much space in it to have that mystical faction in it like i like the idea within the syndicate there are senior members who talk about in the same way a mage could talk about the trimurti or the three uh principles of reality who talks about the innovator the marketplace and the scrap heap using identical mystical framing of it who talks about understanding the warp and web of primal flows where like like if you just do a find and replace on a hermetic talking about ley lines uh, with right. modern trappings, you have a syndicate member. And I really like the idea of it being like, hmm, these fuckers are getting real weird, but they make bank. Like who wants to tell them that they're essentially recapitulating two millennia old verbena blood magic. Like when they do a kickoff meeting and they choose a member to represent all the failures of the last product, are we going to talk about how that's a scapegoat ritual and they've just reinvented it in modern trappings? You're welcome to point that out, NWO member, and point out how unmutual you are and watch as every product you ever want to have exist never gets funded. And that to me is just delicious. So like if I ever got to do a weird mashup project, it would be Cults of the Technocracy. But anyway, Again, this is this is so involved. exactly yeah. Sateros gets to do it's like the Star Trek it's like Star Trek movies so when Sateros comes back for Mage 6 that is that is the, <laughs> the addition I'm gonna pitch <laughs> there... I'm sorry if I just made you throw up a little oh, in your mouth no. <laughs> the, the Mage 6 somewhere down the line there so there's a, a question in the in the chat well, why don't yeah. we uh, take a look at it so about the bad guys uh, how do, do the Nefandi get along or see the Black Spiral Dancers or the Sabbat? And I mean, I. Toys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Toys, pawns, Dregvati. Uh, go into that in uh, in the Book of the Fallen and touch on that in, in my forthcoming Storytellers of Halt book, Fallen Companions, although that one's more about mortals than about, you know, vampiric pawns or whatever, but they're pawns. They're useful allies, cannon fodder, uh, and a means to an end, which is pretty much the way that Nefandi in general regard everybody, including other Nefandi, a useful tool toward an end. The Nefandi were tie-ins, I mean, blatantly tie-ins to werewolf. I mean, the, the last line of the first, uh, the, uh, the the last line of the, the the description of the of the Nefandi in first edition Mage is, you know, that the, the, they call this the worm. They're worm mages. They're to be tied in with uh, with werewolf, and they were boogie boogie eldritch evil. And in the original presentation of them, it was it was a bit Lovecraftian, crossed with satanic panic, which was still in full swing when we wrote the Book of Madness. Yeah, it was. I was addressing it both from a perspective of parody. You know, because we were we were white wolf during the satanic panic. So, of course, I was going to make fun of what they were saying about us. But at the same time, and again, I'll, I'll talk about this more on the on the next episode, probably. But I have actually seen what people with malign intent 
can do with with metaphysics and psychology and cult ment and cult mentality. The results are horrifying. I've known people who've dug, who've dug up graves. I've known people who sacrificed animals. I've known people that I walk into a room and I can feel that this this malign this malevolence radiating off them, and I'm like, "Fuck it, I am out." And everybody else is going, "Oh, but they're so neat." And I'm like, "How do you not see this? <laughs> it's not all." bullshit propaganda. Most of it is bullshit propaganda. And ironically, the majority of the bullshit propaganda is coming from people who are more evil than any, than any, you know, booga booga, you know, kitty sacrificing pseudo Satanist is. That doesn't discount the fact that they do exist. I think the lines, especially when we're talking about the Nefandi and we're talking about heroes and so on, is kind of the more doctrinaire in a lot of cases you get. Those lines start blurring like mm -hmm. so for instance you have the by die which are a group of marauders that want to make reality weaker by killing most of humanity all would be great but then they wouldn't <laughs> have would... anyone to play with and the difference between those and the obliviates is one has immunity to paradox <laughs> like <laughs> and what does a like what is the technocratic static version of that is it the the procrustean old man capital o capital m who literally wants to see reality purged of all people that don't match their notion of perfection and it's one of those weird things where like at a critical level, the outcomes look real close to one another and the philosophical trappings around it are almost like, uh, like a hermetic mm -hmm. talking about the city of Pymander referring to each has the ability to change reality in accordance with their will and those of in of lower ability serving those of higher ability. That's real similar to the Leviathan of the Nefandi if you take it too far, a verbena notion of service to the seasons or whatever you decide is your notion of the natural order is very hard to differentiate at a certain level with certain things from the uh, Lex Predatorianus. I think that's how you say that. The uh, the law of predation. Lex Predatoria, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so I think it's one of those things where like the boundaries between these things are a lot thinner mm -hmm. than I think we're willing to give it credit for. And that is why I think there are mystical syndicate members. And I think there are a lot of highly technomantic dream speakers and weird shamanic practices within the virtual adepts. I just think these things kind of bleed into each other rather than saying the Nefandi have the monopoly on decay and entropy. It's their main ingredient but there's still a lot of other things kind of mixed in. And one of the areas where, where Satoros and I uh, kind of differ is kind of how do we represent institutional evil in the world of darkness? What is the difference between Nefandus and your syndicate member who is perfectly comfortable wiping your village off the map? Because if we do, we will have access to this mineral vein. And if you think consumerism and consumption is just another type of decadence, how is that different from somebody creating a literal call hellmouth? Um, mm. Again, really hard to tell the difference mm -hmm. kind of when you squint. And that is something I would say for storytellers to keep in mind. I think Mage is one of the powerful things Mage can do is by saying, you're all just doing magic. Like you can put whatever trappings you want on top of it by saying, you're all just pursuing personal power or you're all just seeking personal wealth for different definitions of wealth. I think the power of Mage is to show those equivalences across cultures and across factions and how everyone, despite the fact that 
that they think they have access to the true, the, a truer truth than everyone else in a certain way is kind of just bullshitting them. Uh, one of the rules changes that occurred in M20 that at first I thought was stupid, but then I realized was genius is we never get a definition of what a retay represents. Like in previous editions, it was like, oh, it was how much you really understood reality. And then everyone merged at the top kind of, but in M20, it's like, no, it's your mage power stat. And just because you have an Arite a six does not mean you are morally superior to anyone else in any way, shape or form. There is not some true reality you understand compared to anyone else. And I just think that's gorgeous. Part of that came from, you know, t having 10 years more life experience. And actually part of that came from discussing the actual word Arete with Adonis, Adonis Galates, Nina Galates, uh, my other friends in Greece. I've, I've mentioned in a number of places before that one of the biggest inspirations, actually probably the single biggest inspiration for me, other than life itself, from, for my vision of Mage, was, is the film Rashomon. You know, oh, yeah. in which it's ultimately it got this story and you mm -hmm. got this story and you got this story again and they're trying to figure out what the hell the what the hell all the stories are different and they agree on this and they agree on this and these things happened but everybody's got a different perspective on how it happens back when uh during the the first edition days i would be talking to people and they'd be like well why isn't there a definitive answer to this i said you know if, if you read a, a an american textbook a british textbook a russian textbook and a german textbook about world war ii you get four completely different wars which one is the right one that's the question <laughs> isn't it <laughs> anyone have any final thoughts or other elements you might want to talk about on the notion of of the baddies in mage one of the most common questions I get as someone who interfaces a lot with people who are trying to figure out how to run Mage for the first time. So the, mm -hmm. the area where I think Mage the podcast shines is people who want to go from players to storytellers. And yep. if ultimately we can help get butts and seats that run games to tell stories that are meaningful among a group of people, I win! Um, we also have a Patreon. But anyway, one of my strongest recommendations is before you run your game, come up with game tenants. This is an idea that exists in some games. Powered by the Apocalypse is probably the most notable. But like a few of mine when I run a game are Mage is so big, it is very hard to find the answer to the question that you want within it, even though M20 now has something like 1.6 million published words. <laughs> Reality happens to be big. So come up with your game tenants and that will help answer your questions. Like for my games, it's all beliefs matter and have power. All people have beliefs and their world reflects them. Number two is the choice to abandon humanity is a conscious one. The holes we dig are deep, but they should never be bottomless. There are other magic in the world besides spheres. It is rare and strange. Mortals are not cattle. They are not wise, but they are not stupid. We work best in the shadows. When you're coming up with yours, and I have about 10 of them, try and come up with those for your table. It is something that I share with the players, but I don't share with the characters. And it really helps answer a lot of these questions. Like one of the tenets I have is the Ascension War is internal and external and has 10,000 faces. The main battlefronts are the entirety of Earth and inside of each of us. And I think those really give direction and help answer the question of who a villain and who a hero is. And if you can figure out what your mage game is first, it'll answer a lot of those questions. And the mage sandbox is so big, they all will fit. And the problem is figuring out what you don't want your game to be. 
not what you want it to be in a lot of cases. But if you can do that exercise either as a storyteller or as a table, I think that will give you a set of guiding principles to answer a lot of questions when you're not sure what the lore should be or you're not sure what the rules should be. Damn, I love you, Terry. Awesome. <laughs> that was that was deep. You, you rock. Uh, I just want people to play Mage. I think it's a fun game and it's swell. Thank you, Mr. Picado. <laughs> like I, I don't what, what else do I say? <laughs> Anyone else? Uh my final thought would be as far as actually playing the game, people say it a lot, but they say it a lot because it matters and a lot of people don't listen when we say it because we say it so much, but it's not about the mechanics, it's about the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. The tenants that Terry's talking about matter because those are the story. I toss out the rules all the time. Sure, your spell works because it's cool for the story. I do it because yeah. I can't remember what the rule is and I, <laughs> it'll take too long to look it up. But Tyler, you're absolutely Sounds- right. <laughs> My closing words would just be thank you. Thank all three of you. Thank everybody who's watching. Thank everybody who plays Mage. Thank you. Thank everybody who's wa- who's worked on Mage over the years, because mm-hmm. Mage is this 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 kind of on, ongoing wonder because of y'all. I've worked on a bunch of games, you know, and I've I've been gaming, you know, for forty three years now. Um, but I've never seen a game that matters to people like mage does and that's what matters most to me that's what keeps me coming back is because we have something here that matters very deeply to the people who love it and thank you for that i am really glad that we are able to inspire people that way because that's really what matters to me and i appreciate all of y'all for for making this this weird ass thing matter so much so you know so many years uh, running it changes lives and it certainly changed mine thank you for that on that beautiful note we did have a, a question a, a thank you to <laughs> to us but also would the four of you consider doing a limited series of game sessions one day <laughs> no one has to answer that but we can we, we can approach <laughs> that and you can see that in the future possibly <laughs> there's a very a very beautiful very poignant statement to leave it on uh, so i would in two weeks we'll be returning to our episode we we do the second and fourth of every month Saturday and i'll be talking about as i mentioned before the book of the fallen and the defendi i want to thank everyone for coming on tonight it was awesome to have have you all here and provide your insight and i i hope those of us in the audience who are here also enjoyed it and have something to take away from it we'll go around and everyone can sign off and uh if you have something you want to plug plug (laughs) No, thank you, everybody. In addition to my work on Mage, I have a number of projects available through the company that my uh, my spouse, Sandra Damiana Swan, and I own, which is Quiet Thunder Productions, which is on Drive-Thru RPG. I also have these non-Mage books, Valhalla with a Twist of Leaf, which is a collection of my short fiction from various different places, Weird Tales, New Witch, uh, Grey Eye Glances, various uh, Sword and Sorceress, and so forth. And my non-Mage, but very, very me novel, Red Shoes, which just came out this past January and is available in trade paperback, hardcover, and audiobook editions. And the audiobook is fucking awesome. It was performed by Ivy Tara Blair with music by S.J. Tucker, and I highly recommend it. I also have a Patreon, Sadros Fogricado on Patreon, and I'm an independent creator, so please support creators and support our work. Thanks. Awesome. Okay, uh, Terry, do you want to... Uh... Sure. My name is Terry Robinson. I am one of the hosts of Mates the Podcast. And for a mind-boggling long, long period of time, we have somehow produced an episode every week talking about Mage the Ascension. We're on episode like 210. And sometimes I'm like, 
how did we do that? And then I remember <laughs> I was responsible for 178 of those episodes. And I'm like, how did you do that? And then I remembered I'm married. And I go, how does she let me do that? It's just a chain <laughs> of introspection. <laughs> At Maids of the Podcast on Twitter, discord.me slash Maids of the Podcast. I really think there's a lot more people that can run Mage than they think they can. And if you're one of those people who's kind of curious, but you're not quite sure, join our Discord. We will help you get your chronicle up and running. We will give you the 11 contradictory answers to every question you have that just proves <laughs> that you can't do it wrong. Unless you're rolling 1d20 with a flat modifier, you're probably doing mage. <laughs> so yeah, madesthepodcast.com, discord.me slash madesthepodcast, at madesthepodcast on Twitter. Go play the game. Do it. And last but not least, Tyler. Hi, I am Eldrick Echoes. You can come see me at twitch.tv slash warpletales, youtube.com slash c slash warpletales. There's a lot of mage there. Right now we're on a couple weeks break while we break down Hunter 5th, and then we're going right back to our ongoing mage chronicle every Sunday at 9. Also, plug these two. The podcast is great, and be on the lookout for Shatteros's new self-published thing on Drive RPG that I'm excited for expanding on. Fallen Companion? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, boy. Hunter Fifth. So good they skipped three editions. Yeah, Wasn't I mean, that Paranoia's uh, <laughs> stick for a while? I call it uh, that, but it's just Hunter the Reckoning. They didn't give it a number, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's one of those things where it's like the Anaheim Mighty Ducks of San Francisco yeah. version two reloaded Ariel's Big Adventure or something. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So. Awesome. Okay. Um, and uh, I am your host, Simon. This is Walking Into Shadow, a mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Introductory Series, broadcasting the second and fourth Wednesday of every month, uh, 9 o'clock Eastern Time on the Onyx Path Twitch. Have a good night, everybody. Hope everyone had a majorly good time. (laughs) Go change reality. (laughs) Bye. This has been Mage the Podcast, where if we had a regular panel show, we wouldn't ask you what you thought, because that might make it awkward if you didn't actually enjoy it, and we're not going to fish for compliments like that. Our executive producers include Josh Hillerup, Oracle of Panel Show Guests That Have a Wild Story to Tell, Buck Farmer, Oracle of Panel Show Guests That You'll Never Guess the Secret They've Been Hiding Until Just Now, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Panel Show Guests That Simply Have a New Product That Will Change Your Life, Mikhail, Oracle of Panel Show Guests That Are Pretty Sharp But Just Keep Getting Shouted Down by the Host, Jay Widener, Oracle of Panel Show Guests That Just Don't Know, They Just don't know. And the crew of Erebus, Oracle of Sally Jesse Raphael's twin sister with purple instead of red glasses, Sally Jesse Donatello. Thanks for your support. Additionally, I'd like to thank Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Bedurfi, Boo, Boogers, 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 Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Cup, and Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Simpson, Gargle Noir, George Laura, Guy Conan Stewart, Eobel, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jason Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedel, Michael Parker, Morgan Aran, Nathan Weaver, Nick Barrow, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Puka G., Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout out is to the crew of Erebus, where 
crew is spelled K-R-E-W-E, often the term used for a group that puts on or participates in a ball or parade for carnival in advance of the liturgical season of Lent. Erebus being the personification of darkness, taken literally, I think this group is secretly my chemical romance in their persona for the album The Black Parade, which I still think is a banger, even if it's a little overwrought at times. That means their leader would be Gerard Way, former singer and now comic book artist who just looks so much better rested now that he's stopped touring, and also did a lovely run of the Doom Patrol that I think was just great. Thanks for your support. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye. I feel comfortable calling Amazon the winner of the Ascension conflict so far. (laughs) (laughs) So is it the syndicate then? No, no. Uh, Sleepers. Sleepers are always the winners of the Ascension conflict. Um, They get the reality they deserve. That's how the world of darkness works. Right. Fondy are just taking credit for things that other people have done. And it's frustrating, Um, though, when you look at a book that's like 24 pages and you're like, Uh, I haven't had a chance to go through it yet. Um, (laughs) Or you're like, at a critical point, you're really like, "Ah, maybe you don't want to do this, buddy. That's like having a nine-piece jigsaw puzzle and saying you haven't gotten around to it. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Shut up and let me compliment you. (laughs) It's an absolute banger of a book. This is the hand motion that was done with that book. (laughs) (laughs) It is the only revised tradition book that had so much stuff that it needed to shove in your mage hole that there is no framing fiction. There is no prelude, barely. And it's just like, we have stuff we're going to do. Also, the other cool thing was revised, like White Wolf is like, get rid of the disparates. People are confused by them. And they're like, okay, we're going to produce Dead Magic 1, Dead Magic 2, Dragons of the East, and (laughs) Guide to the Traditions, which introduced literally 37 new groups within its pages by itself. Talk about trying to order around mage authors. I just needed to get that on the record. (laughs) Yeah, sure. We'll we'll totally simplify it. Just let me write that up on my invisible typewriter. Dum-dum-dum.